to the Ice at Dartmouth podcast. Normally when we think about the study of distant stars and planets, we think principally that we might learn something interesting about objects far from us. While this is generally accurate, studying faraway planets can also tell us something interesting about our own planet, and this is what I'm going to talk to Dr. Adam Frank about in this episode. Adam is an astrophysicist at the University of Rochester, where he works on, in addition to what we will talk about in this episode, using supercomputers to model how stars form and die. In addition to research, he has worked extensively to share the splendor of science through popular books, such as The Constant Fire, Beyond the Science versus Religion Debate. He also contributes to the New York Times and NPR's All Things Considered. He is the co-founder of NPR's 13.7 Cosmos and Culture blog. I'm particularly fascinated by your work because it seems like as an astrophysicist, you're interested in distant objects, but you're also really interested in uh, what's going on here on Earth and the, and the connection between the two. And I wonder if you would like to tell us a bit about how um, you go about studying distant objects, and then maybe we could talk about how how that can inform our understanding of life here on Earth. Sure. Uh, so astronomy, the way anything in astronomy works is all you've got is light, photons, light particles. Um, and so what you have to do is you have to use a telescope to capture photons, light particles, from distant objects and then beat the crap out of them to try and get them to give up their secrets, basically. You interrogate them. And so um, when it comes to asking about life on other worlds, and we're talking about distant worlds here, meaning planets orbiting other stars. Stars are at enormous distances compared to the planets in our own solar system. So if we're talking about planets around other stars, uh, we're talking interstellar distances. Um, and those are, you know, those are measured in light years, the amount of time it takes uh, uh, for light to travel in a year, which is, you know, an insane amount of, of distance. Um, so what you have to do is you have to take the light that actually passes through the, the stars, or sorry, the planet's atmosphere when it gets between us and its own star, what's called a transit. And uh, then from that, you're gonna try and understand what chemicals are in the atmosphere of that distant planet. And there are certain chemicals we think would only be in an atmosphere if there was life. So things like oxygen and methane, if we find both oxygen and methane, uh, evidence for oxygen and methane in a distant planet's atmosphere, we think that's an indication that there's a biosphere there. So um, this is what is called, so what we're looking for when we study distant objects and we're thinking about life is what we're looking for are bio signatures. Signatures in the spectra uh, of these distant worlds uh, in there, the imprints of the light that tell us that there are chemicals that are only could be produced by life. So this is now a, you know, uh, it seems amazing that we're even at a point where we could even ask this question because when I was a young man, uh, when I started in astronomy, there were we didn't know whether there were any planets outside our own solar system. That was still a completely open question. Uh, so, you know, there was really nothing to do when we talked about, if we wanted to talk about life on other, out in the galaxy, there was nothing to do other than yell at each other, you know, just have an argument, not based on anything. But what happened in 1995, 96, is we started discovering uh, planets around other worlds. And that started as a trickle and then became a flood, basically. And we now know that every star in the sky has a, a, at least one planet, most likely, and probably a family of planets. So now 
uh, this the study of life on other worlds, you know, again, not in our own solar system, that's a separate field, Mars, Venus, etc. But life on other planets orbiting other stars is now there's really, you know, we're at a point where there's really going to be a lot to do over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So it's really a very, very exciting time in terms of actually having data that can say something about this question. Now, is there life elsewhere in the galaxy? We're, 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 rather than yelling at each other, we're now just at the point we're gonna start getting data that we can have something real to, to argue about as opposed to just opinions. And how do you go about, so you've, so you've got light reflecting on these planets and telling, hopefully telling us a little bit about what's on those planets, these biosignatures. How do you, how do you get the, get the data? Is that coming in through uh, telescopes orbiting the earth? Is that coming in directly to earth? Is there something else going on? You can be telescopes, you know, there's a variety of different, any kind of, any, as long as the telescope is big enough, it has the right capacities, you know, we can either be a space telescope or a ground-based telescope. So what's happening is over the next 20 to 40 years, we're going to be building the next generations of telescopes. So things like in space, there's the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, which is going to go up hopefully next year. That's like, can just begin to start doing this. Um, but we expect on the ground that over the next 20 years, we're going to start having 30 meter class telescopes. These are telescopes that are a third the size of a foot. The mirror is the third the size of a football field. Um, but in the next generation after that, which we might have in say 50 years, is going to be a hundred meter class telescope, a, a mirror you know, that's made up of a bunch of pieces the size of a football field. And with telescopes like that, we have the possibility of seeing city lights on the on the on the on the the night side of a of a planet. So it's pretty amazing. So um, that's what I mean. And then of course you know the the the, the next next gen, the next generation of space telescopes after James Webb. Uh, you know, all of those things will have the possibility of giving us either direct imaging of planets or being, you know, being able to do, being able to do even better when it comes to the spectral biosignatures. That's incredible. It wow. Is. That's huge. How do you, I mean, this is maybe flirting with dangerously technical material here, but once you get the data, I mean, I gather you do a lot of, a lot of um, really uh, computationally involved modeling once you get this stuff. What, is there a way of understanding roughly what's going on there once you have the data? Well, that's the difficulty. You've got to model the data. So what you're going to get out of the, depending on what, I mean, if you can do direct imaging, that's one thing, right? I mean, so that, that's a little bit, that's a ways in the future. So we won't do that. But basically right now, biosignatures means spectra. What you're, you're looking for in the light are these, um, these signatures, these wiggles in the, uh, what we call emission or absorption lines, um, really absorption lines. In the, in the spectra that tell you the presence of elements or molecules. So it's an amazing thing about nature that whenever, uh, that every element and every molecule has a, has a fingerprint, has a, has a, a light fingerprint. Uh, by light, by what I mean by that is that every uh, element or molecule will only emit or absorb a set of wavelengths of radiation and no others. So that means that basically, if I shine light through uh, uh, through some hydrogen gas, I can tell exactly that it's hydrogen gas. If I shine light through a mixture of helium and say carbon dioxide, I can identify. There's going to be a bunch of wiggles in the uh, when the, uh, you know when the light after the light passes through. There's going to be a bunch of wiggles imposed on that light that I'm going to be absolutely be able to tell that there was those uh, you know uh, those constituents. So. 
The trick is you've got to model the atmospheres. And, you know, first of all, you have to make sure that, okay, those are the, the elements that we saw or the molecules that we saw. But even more challenging is to say, well, how do I know those? Are, let's say I absolutely see oxygen and methane. I'm clearly, I've clearly detected oxygen and methane in the atmosphere of that planet. Can I now absolutely say, oh my God, there's a biosphere there. Um, so that's really the part of the problem is, is being able to to, to know exactly and for sure that there was no, because always the question is, you want to say, oh, life produced that. But maybe there's some way, some abiotic way, there's some way of being able to produce those without life being there. So that's going to be the challenge is that, you know, for, for element, like, again, I think if we saw oxygen and methane in large quantities, that would be like the, you know, the, the, the brass ring, so to speak. Um, but in general, we may only see oxygen. And for a long time, people said, well, if you see oxygen, that's it. Because in the Earth's atmosphere, if it wasn't for life, all the oxygen in the atmosphere would go away pretty quickly. It would all react away. So, um, so for a long time, people were like, yes, if you see oxygen, you found it. But now we know that for certain kinds of planets, there are ways, uh, uh, non-biological ways of producing a lot of uh, oxygen in your atmosphere. So what that means is we're going to have to really, we're going to need lots of different ways of coming at the problem. We're not just going to be able to look just for two chemicals and say, that's it. We're going to have to look for the chemical composition. We're going to have to understand more about the temperature of the, of the planet, the pressures on the planet, the kind of uh, um, any anything we can get about the geology. So it'll be more complicated, but it's still going to be within the realm of, you know, people right now are really beginning to think very carefully about this problem. Now, these distant planets, they're so far away and so dissimilar from Earth in many respects, but it's, but I, I gather that uh, you find this very stimulating for thinking about life on Earth and what the Earth is doing. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about, about that, how, how this study of distant planets can help us understand Earth a bit better? Well, and particularly what I'm interested in, now we're talking about the possibility of, of intelligent life, of civilizations. Um, and so one of the things that uh, I was uh, intrigued by was the idea that, um, you know, you can work through the numbers. And it turns out that now that we know there's so many planets in the universe, uh, it turns out to be pretty unlikely that we are the only time in the course of, of cosmic history that there was a civilization. You know, still doesn't mean that it's happened, but it just means that the numbers, we now actually can put a limit on the numbers. Um, and it turns out uh, the only way that we are, the only time it's ever happened is if the odds of, of developing life in a civilization on some random planet you chose is less than one in 10 billion trillion, which is, yeah, so. So nature really has to be pretty biased against making civilizations if it's if the odds of getting one on a random planet is one in 10 billion trillion. So uh, what I started thinking about was like, well, you know, what is is there anything we can say about the generic history of civilizations and their planets? Right. And, you know, of course, you don't want to get into some kind of science fiction story, you know, where they've got prosthetic foreheads and, you know, they there's eight sexes or, you know, whatever what really the interesting thing you can do here is like a civilization is really just a way for, is, is just a way of converting energy into work, right? You can just think of this purely in terms of thermodynamics. Um, so if we understand how planets respond to having energy extracted from them and then, you know, uh, uh, have uh, work be done, building buildings, you know, keeping infrastructure going, it really doesn't matter what they look like or how many sexes they have or how many toes they have. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that there's kind of a physical process going on here. Civilization extracts energy from the planet 
least a young one, especially, extracts energy from the planet and does work with it. Now, you know, what we know will happen in those cases, at least for some planets like Earth, is that you're going to feed back on the climate systems, not just the climate systems, all the systems. So a planet is really a set of a uh, couple uh, interacting systems. You've got oceans, the, the hydrosphere, or any water that's there, the hydrosphere, the atmosphere, the lithosphere, which is the rock. Um, and then, you know, if there's life there, the biosphere. And these things are all strongly coupled. If something happens to one, it's going to feed back into the other and vice versa. And in particular on Earth, the biosphere took over Earth, you know, three billion years ago, just completely changed how the function of the planet works. And if you want a clear example of this, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere when life first started. And it was after about a billion years or so, life got to the point where it completely, it added 30% oxygen to the atmosphere. And that, and that changed everything. That changed all the chemistry of the Earth. So, you know, it's pretty clear that life is pretty potent force on the planet. So, um, so yeah, what we wanted to do is we wanted to think about planets and civilizations in general, right? You know, what are the generic kinds of things that are going to happen once you get an energy intensive civilization operating on the planet? And that was the birth of what we call the astrobiology of the Anthropocene. So the Anthropocene is the term given to the current state of the earth where human activity actually is one of the most important factors driving changes in the state of the earth, right? That's why we have climate change happening. Human beings are, you know, have extracted, are extracting huge amounts of energy. They're doing things with it. It's feeding back on the climate and it's pushing the climate and all the earth systems in a new direction. So we wanted to know like, yeah, in general, you know, what's, what's the generic outcome of that? Is it always, is, does everybody always die, you know, or does it in general, doesn't really matter. Um, so uh, that's been the study that we've started and we've just started it. So we, we have a couple of results uh, from this, but it was this general idea that look, we now know there's gazillions of planets. Every one of those planets is a place to be. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a place. There's going to be wind blowing. There, there are certainly going to be oceans, lots of places. Um, there are going to be mountains. There's going to be snow falling. You know, so they're all places where things can happen. And the idea is, well, on some of them, you've gotten life. And on some places, that life has turned into, you know, has developed a technological energy intensive civilization. And then you can ask, okay, in general, what happens? You know, so, and that's useful for us because if let's say we find out I do this and I do some kind of theoretical study, like, right, obviously I don't have any data right now, but I can try and model things, right, using the laws of physics and geology and biology. Um, and I find that no matter what happens when you get a technological civilization, you get 200 years and then you're dead. You know, that would be that well, yeah, okay, that would tell you something. Uh, or, you know, you could find like, no, no, you know, 50% of the time you're dead. The other 50% of the time you manage to make it through. Well, that's important too. So that is how we're sort of trying to use exoplanets. Planets are orbiting other stars. The idea that there are so many worlds to perhaps inform the situation we're dealing with right now on this planet. In thinking about civilizations this way, in terms of energy, how is that different from, I don't know, say like a the storms on Jupiter or other systems that absorb energy and then seem to do work. Yeah, I, I would kind of argue that it's very similar. In fact, it's that's why, listen, we have studied climate now on, you know, seven or eight different worlds, right? Because we've got it. We, we know about the climate on Mars. We know about the climate on Venus. We know about the climate on Jupiter. We know about the climate on Saturn. Um, we've also got... Um, uh, the, the moon Titan, which has a, a methane, thick methane atmosphere. 
the rules are the same. You know, there are there are jet streams on almost all those worlds because jet streams are just something that happens when you've got an atmosphere, energy input from the star and the planet rotating. So it's the exact same question. Now we're just saying like, okay, now add a technological civilization. What's going to happen? I, my argument is going to be that there are some things that are going to be very generic and we need to find those out because that may help us understand what we're doing here. Excellent. And you mentioned some possible scenarios, maybe after 200,000 years, they just, they just die out. What are you, what are you finding in your uh, modeling and thinking about these, I guess it's early stages, but in thinking about um, the general fate of civilization, I suppose. Yeah. So what the, the news is uh, the news is good and bad. <laughs> the, the good news. And it was funny because when we, when we published these results, it got a lot of press and mostly the press was like, aliens all die from climate change. And they, because it's true, one of the, we, we, we found three different kinds of solutions, generic solutions in our, these were, these were simple, very simple models, but um, there were three different kinds of solutions. One was what we called um, the die off. And that was where the civilization always ramped up rapidly. You get exponential growth, which you know is what we we're seeing right now. And then you overshot the carrying capacity of your planet. The, you know, the, how many, you know, whatever aliens you can have on your planet. And then there was a big die off so that, you know, you went from say 30 billion down to 10 billion, right? But then it leveled off. Now, you know, the question is in reality, could you lose, you know, two thirds of your population and, as a, and be a technological civilization and still be a technological civilization or would that itself cause a stronger crash? But at least within the model, you leveled off, you reached a steady state where the planet wasn't getting any worse and the population wasn't, you know, wasn't dropping anymore. Um, we also found the uh, collapse where basically everybody died. <laughs> the, planet, the temperature on the planet just ran away um, and everybody died. Uh, and so that's what the newspapers were kind of focusing on or the stories were focusing on. But we also found what we called the soft landing, which is where the, the temperature on the planet went up or the environmental conditions degraded uh, as the population went up because the population was using energy, but then it leveled off, everything leveled off. And so you could, you actually found a steady state. There was a steady state where the planet was habitable and the population was still at a reasonably high rate that you could expect to have a complex technological civilization. So that was the good news and nobody ever really covered that part. So like, you know, so the answer is, because here, here's the real question, and this is sort of, you know, a good place to sort of, you know, wind down on our discussions. Here's the question you want to ask. How do you know whether a, techno a long-lived technological civilization is something that nature does, right? Because we know that nature makes planets, we know it makes stars, it makes comets, makes black holes, makes clouds of interstellar gas, but we don't yet know whether na nature makes technological civilizations that last a million years, right? We know we've gotten one that's lasted a couple hundred years, but you know, we're really interested in whether or not we're gonna get another million or even another thousand. So, you know, we don't know whether that's even something nature makes. These models say, well, in some cases, yeah, nature could, could make that. And so what the good news is we were able to, you know, in our models, again, very simple, but, you know, from those models, the answer to that question was like, yes, nature can make long-lived technological civilizations. And then I suppose the challenge is to figure out which civilization is this one? Yes, exactly. Right. We don't know which camp we fit. And again, like I want, I want to caution because those were very simple models. It could be in the next generation of the model, everybody dies, you know, or it could be the next gen, you know, and when the models get better, everybody lives. Um, but you know, what you really want to hope for is that, and so this is to your question about like, well, what do you, you know, by studying distant planets, what do we hope to learn 
about uh, our own planet is that now, you know, by studying theoretical models of distant planets that have civilizations on them, what we hope to learn is what was it that allowed the civilizations that make it, that become long-term, what kind of decisions did they make or what kind of, what kind of interaction were they having with their planet that allowed them to, you know, to, to continue on for a long time. And so, you know, if you run, if you have complicated models you know, or in-depth models and you run a hundred thousand of them, you can sort through them and see, okay, you know, here's all the bunch that died after 300 years. Here's the ones that didn't. Let's look at what was happening in the ones that died versus the ones that didn't die to try and understand the difference between them. And is this what you'll be working on next with this project? Yeah. So actually right now we're in the middle, we're in paper two, it's taken a long time to write, but what we did, so like I said, the, you know, this is the beautiful thing about science, right? You start with like something really, really simple. You know, we even, you could call our first model a toy model in the sense that, you know, it was complicated and needed a computer to run, but it was still, it was, everything was very abstracted, right? You know, so we had a civilization and it, the civilization interacted with the, the planet by drawing resources out. And then we had an equation for the planet but it was all, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was just we, we were using, we had developed mathematical relationships that sort of were kind of indicative. They were sketches, you know what I mean, of what really happens. Now we're running a model where we're actually using a climate model that's been tuned for the Earth. So, you know, now the physics of the climate in our models is much, much more accurate, right? It's much more re or realistic. So now, you know, uh, we have a civilization and beforehand, we were just saying, oh, energy extraction, I don't know, you know, how that's happening. Now, what we have is we have a population, uh, a model for the population where every time a baby's born, you know, uh, that baby contributes a certain amount of CO2. So what we're saying is the energy, uh, the means of energy uh, extraction now is combustion. You know, whether they're burning fossil fuels or they're just burning, you know, Zorgonian wood on the planet Zorgon, whatever. But combustion, you know, because combustion, you know, a likely product of combustion will be CO2. Uh, so, um, so, you know, every baby that's born produces some CO2. That CO2 then feeds, then goes into the climate model and changes the climate, uh, changes the climate. Uh, by by uh, increased heating, so you know now we're we're a little bit further along where we've had to narrow the focus to like okay only planet civilizations that burn stuff to get energy, um, but uh, but by doing that we've made it more realistic as well. So over time, what we'd want to do is do this for plant for uh, civilizations that use wind power or nuclear power or because there's always feedback, obviously. Some things have more feedback than less, but unless you do the modeling, you know, there was a, there was a, a paper that showed that if you tried to extract uh, all of the world's energy needs from wind, you would still end up messing with the environment, right? You would, because you're, because look, you know, it, second law of thermodynamics says if you lose, a, if you use a lot of energy to do work, you got to create feedback. You got to create quote unquote waste of some kind, entropy. So there's no free lunch. That's like the most important thing. So the question now is to look through different kinds of uh, energy modalities uh, and see what goes on. So for the CO2 paper, or you know, for yeah, for the combustion paper, what we find is once again is that yeah, in some cases you you know not everybody dies, but lots of them die, or at least lots of them have anthropocenes. It's hard to say whether they'll die, but you know, many of the models trigger the growth of the population is actually halted 
because of the feedback on the climate system. Well, I look forward to, to seeing future papers. It's fascinating material. Thanks very much, Adam, for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great talking. Thanks for listening. I'm grateful to everyone at ISA Dartmouth and to Adam Frank for making this episode possible. We listen to The Wonder of Science by Lex and Music. Stay tuned for more episodes or check ice.dartmouth.edu. Thank you.